All right, well, amazingly, we are already into week three of our series through the book of Hebrews. Last week, we discussed nine truths concerning the identity of Christ. The last truth we discussed came from verse four, which says this, so he, Christ, became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. From this, we glean the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ is superior to every created being in the universe. Since the Bible is clear that angels are second only to God, first among the created, to say that Christ is superior to them is to put him in a position held by no created being. This is, of course, because Christ is uncreated. He has always been with God, and he was always God, as we discussed with reference to John chapter 1. Interestingly, this ninth point, I mean, we had nine points about, about Jesus, really the deity of Christ. This ninth point about Jesus being superior to the angels and therefore to every created being was possibly the weakest point last week, since most of the other points left us with a firm understanding that Jesus is quite simply God. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, as we learned. So after making such a strong case for the deity of Christ, why does the inspired writer of Hebrews need to make the point that he is also superior to angels in verse 4? Well, it's a bit of a transitional verse, wherein the author is moving into a section about the relationship that the eternal Christ has always enjoyed with the angels. We also talked last week about the fact that the Hebrew people, the Jews, saw angels as an extension of God to a degree which we typically do not. Sometimes the lines between God and his angels can seem a little blurry in the Old Testament scriptures. Honestly, I shared some examples of this and also made the point that some, though not most, of the Old Testament angelic encounters may indeed have been encounters with Christ in his pre-incarnate or pre-flesh heavenly form. I touched on that last week. I'd like to expound upon this a little bit this week. Specifically, when the Old Testament uses the formulaic phrase, the angel of the Lord, the context almost always seems to treat that particular angel as if God himself had come down to earth. The word angel literally means messenger from heaven, by the way, and many theologians, myself included, believe that in certain cases, the identity of this particular messenger from heaven was a manifestation of Christ in his heavenly form. This would explain why the angel of the Lord is referred to as if he were God in those specific passages. In other words, there are certain instances in Scripture when the phrase, the angel of the Lord, is used in conjunction with what seems to be more of a theophany, that's a big word for a God encounter, in which we may be talking about a visitation from the pre-incarnate or pre-flesh Christ, rather than a literal angel, in terms of what we think of as angels. Now, before I go on, I also want to make sure everyone understands that, generally speaking, biblical references to an angel or a group of angels or any angel who is named like Michael or Gabriel is clearly not a reference to Christ. 
And keep in mind that those references are much more common. I am only suggesting that when we read about the angel of the Lord, we may be reading about the Word, as John calls him, that is Christ in his heavenly form, meaning Christ as he was before that time when he came down to be born in Bethlehem. So I want to clarify this morning that in most cases, when we talk about angels, we're talking about heavenly beings who, according to our text, are completely inferior to Christ. Indeed, having been made by the power of his word, as we learned last week. Now, I know some of you may be thoroughly confused right now, but I had to try. And I'll be working in some further explanation on this as we go along. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is not milk toast. So keep those seatbelts fastened as we hit various patches of turbulence. Looking back at our text, right after making his statement that Christ is superior to the angelic beings in verse 4, the writer of Hebrews goes into a 10-verse defense of that statement. The inspired writer quotes from several Old Testament passages to support his case, and this is the section of Scripture we come to today. So let's read the text, and let's engage our spirits and our minds as we read today's section of Scripture from Hebrews, it's verse one, or chapter 1, starting in verse 5, says this. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and this is where we start seeing all these quotes from Scripture. Um, for instance, the first, uh, actually, the first, uh, the first, you are my son today, I've forgotten you. That's Psalm 2, 7. I'll be a father to him, he shall be a son to me. That's 2 Samuel 7, 14, also 1 Chronicles 17, 13. And then when he says, um, and let all the angels of God worship him, which is pretty profound, isn't it? Um, these are all passages of Old Testament scripture that he's using. So, but that much that we've read so far, how much that is, does that affirm last week's message, right? I mean, let all the angels worship him? I mean, really? The angels are to worship Jesus? What does that tell us about who he is? And if the angels should worship Jesus, obviously, so should we. Thank you, Connor, for helping us to do that this morning. Verse 7, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's from Psalm 104, verse 4. And the larger point is that angels are mostly used by God in ways that are unseen by us, moving through the air or the spiritual realm in less corporeal ways, metaphorically like flames and wind. But in fact, we could make some inferences and ponder other places where wind and fire appear in the biblical record. Yet rather than to guess at any of that, we'll move on. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. <laughs> and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Okay, those are quotes from Psalm 45. And we'll talk more about this in a minute. But just in case you were not convinced last week about Jesus being God, hopefully this takes care of it, right? Your throne, O God, is forever. Verse 10, and you, Lord, continue to talk about Jesus 
You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. That's Psalm 102. 25 through 27. And notice that this is a continuation of things being said about Jesus as Lord and God. And then verse 15 or 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Psalm 101 verse 1. Verse 14, are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Okay, so this is our text for today. But as mentioned, many of these verses simply support what we learned last week, that Christ is superior not only to angels, but to all created beings. And it couldn't be more clear that Christ is superior precisely because he is the eternal God in the form of the Son, worthy of worship. That was really our entire message last Sunday. And so today, I've decided to focus on what we can learn about angels from these verses. For starters, I think verse 9 is very interesting. Take a look at it there. Speaking of Christ, the Son, the inspired author writes, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you above your companions. Notice first that even though Jesus is God, as is really clear throughout the whole first 14 verses of this book, even though he is God, there's a reference to God doing something to him. And this is the kind of thing that cults will bring up against our assertion that Jesus is fully God. And I understand to a degree where they are coming from. However, the problem is solved in embracing the clear biblical fact that God exists in the form of three persons. And in the fact that those three persons relate to each other in perfect community. We see the three relating to each other, talking to each other even, as one throughout the Bible. We must embrace the mystery of God. But in order to stay in the lane I've chosen today about angels, there's another question we should be asking from this verse, which is this. Who are these companions of Christ? Looking at the context, it becomes very clear that the companions above whom Christ has been anointed are the angels of heaven. Okay, but why would it be fitting to refer to angels as his companions from which Jesus is being raised up in some way, even though the writer goes on to say that he is exalted above them? I think this choice of words lends credence once again to the idea that when the Old Testament refers to the angel of the Lord, it is a reference to Christ in his heavenly form. Listen, Jesus was and is a close companion to the angels of heaven. Indeed, he was possibly even more of a companion to them before his sojourn on earth. Why would I say that? Well, we know from this passage, as well as Philippians 2 and other places, that after his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus was exalted above the angels and every other being in some mysterious way, even though he was always superior to them, in essence, 
before that. But the point being that perhaps Jesus was even more of a companion to the angels before he took on flesh and before he was resurrected and before he was given the name that is above every other name. For some reason, he needed to be anointed from among his companions, those with whom he had been closely associated at some point. See, we should realize that before Mary conceived of the Holy Spirit, Christ was a resident of a heavenly community. It's true that our Lord and Savior spent an eternity. We think we are so important. Our, our history is a, a blip. Jesus, our Savior, spent an eternity hanging out with the angels before the earth was even created. Now, again, Jesus was always superior to the angels. But as the more accessible member of the Trinity, I believe Christ was a friend to the angels in some kind of special way. He was their close companion. Is that really so hard to imagine? We're talking about Jesus, the friend of sinners. But before that, you see, Jesus was the friend of angels. Isn't it something to imagine the love of Jesus, that he would accept the exchange to come down to be our friend when you compare us to the friends he had before. Why? Because of love. <laughs> now, at this point, I should pause and point out that some of the cults have taken this idea of Jesus and the angels to the extreme until some have said, Jesus was Lucifer's brother and other made-up nonsense like that. But that's just what cults do. They wallow around in ideas that are less clear in Scripture until they have twisted them into the point of heresy. So, remember the original audience here are those believing Jews who had embraced Christ as their Savior. They were completely in touch with Old Testament Scripture. They knew it better than we do. They understood it better than we do. And they knew that the writers of Old Testament of the Old Testament seemed to have no problem referring to the angel of the Lord and then turning around and saying it was actually the voice or the presence of God himself in the same sentence. See, I believe the original audience of this book called Hebrews understood exactly what the writer was trying to say here. We may have to grapple with it. They got it. That when God came down in the form of the angel of the Lord, this being whom their fathers encountered at places like the burning bush was actually Christ. This one who was both companion and Lord to the angelic host. This is such an important understanding for our study through Hebrews. I want to spend even a little bit more time on it. Maybe you need to hear from someone else besides little old me on this matter. One theologian put it like this. If we examine the incidents surrounding the expression, the angel of the Lord, we see a common pattern emerge. Someone wrestles with the angel, like Jacob at the riverbank, or argues with it, or flees from it, or shouts at it, or trembles before it. Then this person discovers a day or two later that he had been contending all along with the living, lordly, sovereign God himself. At the time, he didn't know exactly what he was contending with. A day or two later, he knows he has been engaged in the most energetic struggle with God 
himself. We talked about Jacob last week and Moses at the burning bush. But let's look at one more example of such an encounter. Notice how there's this interchangeability in this passage we're about to read with the idea of the Lord, which in the Hebrew language is a reference to Yahweh, God, and the leader of these three angels appearing as men. Genesis chapter 18. The Lord appeared again. This is how this, the Lord appeared again to Abraham. While he was camped near the oak grove belonging to Mamre, one day about noon, as Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent, he suddenly noticed three men standing nearby. He got up and ran to meet them, welcoming them by bowing low to the ground. My Lord, he said, if it pleases you, stop here for a while. Rest in the shade of this tree where, while my servants get some water to wash your feet. Let me prepare some food to refresh you. Please stay a while before continuing on your journey. All right, they said. Do as you have said. So Abraham ran back to the tent and said to Sarah, Quick, get three measures of your best flour and bake some bread. Then Abraham ran out to the herd and chose a fat calf and told the servant to hurry and butcher it. When the food was ready... He took some cheese curds and milk and the roasted meat, and he served it to the men. As they ate, Abraham waited on them there beneath the trees. Where is Sarah, your wife? They asked him. In the tent, Abraham replied. Then one of them said, about this time next year, I will return, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening to the conversation from the tent nearby, and since Abraham and Sarah were both very old and Sarah was long past the age of having children, she laughed silently to herself. How could a worn-out woman like me have a baby, she thought, and when my master, my husband, is also so old? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Is anything too hard? For the Lord, about a year from now, just as I told you, I will return. Who said they would return a minute ago? And Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she denied that she had laughed, but he said, that is not true. <laughs> you did <laughs> laugh. Now, if you look carefully, you'll see that there is an interchangeability between the Lord and the leader of these three presumed angels who are appearing as men. Notice the leader of the three says, in about a year, I will return. But then in verse 13, the Lord said, in about a year, I will return. So which is it? Who is talking? The leader of the three men, the chief of the three angels, or is it actually the Lord, Yahweh? Well, this person would appear to have been all three of these, at least to a certain extent. He appeared in the form of a man. Though keep in mind that Jesus wasn't actually a man until later when he was born in Bethlehem. But here, he's also the leader of the other two men who fi we find out later are indeed angels. A and he would appear to be as one of them, though we know that he was always much more than an angel in a literal sense. As can be seen by the fact that he is called the Lord, Yahweh, which must be because he was God, the Son, second person of the Trinity, unless you think he was the Father or the Spirit, which makes no sense at all. Referring to this person in three different ways seems confusing. But that is because we tend to assume that 
This was simply a man or an angel at most. Typically, we have ignored the fact that this person is also called the Lord, Yahweh. Or perhaps we've scratched our heads and wondered why. But I'm telling you, we should not ignore this at all. Instead, we should seek to understand who this might be. This person who is having a conversation with Abraham. I believe this heavenly being, this one in appearance of a man as if he were an angel and who is flanked by two angel companions, this one called the Lord is none other than Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who has always existed with God and who always was God. Jesus is God in accessible form. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that he always has been. I realize that this is delving into an area many people have never thought much about. But the beginning of understanding on this comes in realizing that Christ is co-eternal with God. And so he was, he was always there from before time. I made the case last week. But from this base understanding, a deeper comprehension of Christ should develop as we think about his purpose before he came to earth as a baby. You know, what was the eternal logos, the word that is Christ, doing from the dawn of creation until it was time to take on flesh and splash down into human history? Who was Jesus before and what did he do? To put it in a nutshell, I believe that before Bethlehem, after Bethlehem, and for all eternity, Christ is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. If you want to write something down today, there it is. Christ is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Remember from last week that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. No one can see God, but some have seen his light. They saw Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God. When Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne, I believe that was a pre-incarnate or pre-fleshed Jesus Christ. When Moses' face shone from the light of the presence of God, the one he had been talking with as friend with friend was the Lord Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity, later named Jesus, is the one who walked with Adam and Eve in the, in the garden during the cool of the day. He's the one who brought messages to Noah and to Abraham and to Elijah and to Jacob. We need to understand that from the dawn of creation, Christ existed as the supreme mediator between God and man, the go-between, the facilitator, the intercessor, the, the intermediary. And that is exactly what he continues to be for us today. Jesus is our connection to heaven. Our only hope for knowing the God who man cannot otherwise see. Jesus Christ is the visible form of the invisible God who the Bible says lives in unapproachable light. That is who Jesus is and that is who he has always, always been. Remember I said one of the keys that we will better comprehend through the book of Hebrews is the continuity of our faith. Our belief system did not begin when Jesus was born. Christianity did not begin at the cross. Our faith goes all the way back to the beginning because the Christ of Christianity was there even before the beginning. He was with God and he was God. This is why God is often spoken of in the Old Testament with plural pronouns. Let us make man in our image, says God. He is, he is and always was Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. From before the creation of the universe, he was three in one, each fully God, yet each also with his own role to play. God has always been a complete community within himself. Now, I've used a lot of words to try to explain the complicated concept that during Old Testament times, certain specific angelic encounters were actually encounters with Christ. That we're going to spend the rest of our time learning about his heavenly companions, that is, the angels who were simply angels and not the Lord. People have come up with all sorts of silly notions about angels. So let's see. If we can't walk away this morning with a refreshingly biblical view of these heavenly beings, which the Bible refers to as angels. Before we get into some more practical implications from our text, I really just want to make a few corrective statements which I won't take the time to develop or defend this morning. You'll just have to trust me on these, or you can check it out for yourself. Be good Bereans and, and go see if this is not true. So let me just machine gun five quick points at you. I want everyone who regularly sits under my teaching to have these things straight, okay? Actually, there, I can see there are six. I must have added one at some point. Number one, the Bible <clears throat> does not teach that people will ever become angels, okay? Don't get your theology from cartoons, please. Number two, the Bible does not teach that we will ever get our wings or fly around in heaven. Number three, the Bible teaches that angels are normally invisible to us, although in some cases they may be seen. Number four, the Bible teaches that angels have significant supernatural power as God's agents. Number five, the Bible teaches that believers will spend eternity in companionship with the angels. Number six, the Bible teaches that we are lower than the angels now, but after we are glorified to be like Christ, we will reign over them. Okay, those six statements are not biblically disputable. According to Scripture, we will never become angels or get wings. Rather, we'll be made like Christ who, remember, is superior to the angels. Angels generally exist in the unseen spiritual realm, although there are exceptions. Angels are powerful, able to influence the physical world in such a way as to benefit the children of God. One day we'll live with angels in the new heaven and the new earth. And although we are lower than the angels now, after the resurrection, we will actually reign above them. The Bible's not unclear on these facts about angels. Interestingly, 34 of the Bible's 66 books make reference to angels. It's not really a fringe topic. 17 books in the Old Testament, 17 in the New Testament. Angels are mentioned 273 times in the Bible. Many of these references tell us that the number of angels in existence is beyond count. Myriads of myriads. It's an idiom suggesting perhaps even an unimaginable or infinite number. Kind of like the, the number that would be used for the stars, you know. It brings up an interesting question. If that's how many angels there are, they're innumerable. What if the spiritual realm is bigger and more important than we ever imagined? <clears throat> what if the idea that heaven might be crowded with too many humans is hilarious to God? What if this world fits on a pinhead in God's eternal kingdom? What if, there are a million, what if there are a million angels for every one of us? What if the role of angels in the universe is more critical than we've understood? What if the supernatural is far more important than the natural? These are all interesting thoughts that I hope will 
kickstart your mind, but we're actually going to limit ourselves to just two what-if questions regarding angels this morning. And I think the answer to these questions can have profound implications for the way we live our lives out on this earth. First of all, number one, what if God's angels really are here? I mean, like, really? (laughs) What if they're all around us right now? Later in the book of Hebrews, we are told, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. How many of you have seen the, uh, the movie? Some of you are already thinking, oh, I bet he's going to, yeah. Angels in the outfield from Disney before they went crazy. a Disney flick about the Los Angeles Angels baseball team. Obviously, it's a Hollywood-style portrayal of angels rather than a biblical one, but it actually communicates some interesting truths. For instance, my favorite scene in the movie comes toward the end. Tony Danza's character is on the pitching mound, and he's totally spent. The game is on the line, so his manager, played by Danny Glover, comes out to the mound. Danza says, I'm finished. Um, I got nothing left, which, by the way, is usually when angels help. I think. And throughout the movie, there have been these angelic helpers, and the whole team has experienced, they've come to believe that this whole angel thing really is for real, even though they can't see them. So Danny Glover reassuringly says to Tony Danza, you've got an angel with you right now. You've got an angel with you right now. In the movie, it's like the most powerful and comforting thing that could have been said. It's a cool moment to see the pitcher's face relax. Okay. Become confident. Believing he doesn't have to do it on his own. Now, the interesting thing is that in that moment, there is not actually an angel with the pitcher. The angels have withdrawn at this point. They're letting things run their course. But just the idea that an angel is with him gives the pitcher the oomph he needs to throw a good pitch, and he strikes out the batter. He overcomes because he believes he is getting help. In a similar way, we may not always know when and how we are getting help. But if we believe we are getting help in the first place, it can really be the difference between finishing strong or giving up. Do you ever think an angel might help you? Why not? Seriously, why not? Why don't you think about this, he said to himself. Mark, why don't you think about angels pretty well ever until you were working on this sermon? More on that in a minute. We do need to understand that angels are spiritual beings, not fleshly beings. They aren't people. Even those cases where they have appeared in human form, like those appearing to Abraham or when we might entertain them unaware, they were not actually human. Angels are spiritual beings, and they move through the cosmos as spirits. As our text puts it, they are more like wind and fire from our perspective. Elements of the air, a euphemism for the spiritual realm. 
Similarly, the Bible says in Daniel 9.21 that angels can move swiftly through the air. The intended point in passages is like this, is that angels are not physical beings, nor are they bound by physical laws. Think of the scene when Elisha's servant was allowed to see the many angels around them in 2 Kings 6.17. And see, it took a miracle for the servant to see the otherwise in, invisible army of angels around them. Remember, he says, hey, it's okay. They're, the ones that are with us are more than those that are against us. You just didn't see them. You know, the angels are here. They were invisible, though, until a miracle opened the eyes of his servant. So understanding that angels are not generally taking on a physical appearance, is it not possible that there are angels among us even right now? Might there even be an angel right here beside me, helping me as I throw this next pitch? I recognize that this kind of thinking tends to freak people out, but really it shouldn't freak out believers. We do believe in the supernatural, right? Now look back at our text. Verse 14 tells us why angels are here. The inspired writer of Hebrews says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Wow. Really? This is profound. Maybe you were afraid to think so highly of yourself that God would task one of his angels to help you. But if you're a believer, one who has been saved by grace through faith in Christ, your needs have been assigned to the angels by God. This verse indicates actually that all the angels are sent out by God to render service to humans. But which humans? Those humans who are becoming His children by grace through faith in Christ. Those humans are inheriting salvation. If that's you, God's angels are sent your way. The truth is that angels are here right now among us. I believe that. How do I know? Because the Bible says there is an unimaginable number of angels, and it says that they're all being sent out to minister to people who are saved and being saved. I'm pretty sure most of us here in this room are either saved or hopefully on the way to salvation. We are inheriting salvation. So if you've received a Savior by faith, or perhaps if you're about to take that step, then you have likely been ministered to spiritually at different points by the angels of God. That ought to be an encouraging thought. It's good to inherit salvation from God. Amen? I mean, this is a good thing. <laughs> we get angels. Are you kidding me? How much better is that than not getting angels? You know, angel stories are not hard to come by, are they? In my experience, I've found a surprising percentage of people think, they, people think they have encountered angels in one way or another. Many people have a story or two. And, and, and while I realize um, many of these stories may be wishful thinking or fairy tales, as one who believes the Bible, I must also consider that many of them, many of them may, be, may be real. And why not? Do we believe in the supernatural or don't we? 
What if I said to you, like Danny Glover, you've got an angel with you right now. Wouldn't it be fairly likely that I was right? I think so. They are ministering spirits sent by God to us, and there are billions upon billions of them. Uncountable. So, why not? Another thing I found to be amazingly consistent is that people who experience the most persecution for, the, for their faith and those who find themselves in the greatest trials seem to encounter angels at a much higher rate than those who, lives, who are living mostly uh, smooth, or smooth sailing, right? Uh, if you hang around many international missionaries, for instance, those who pick up their families that take the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth, you will undoubtedly hear angel stories. It's an uncanny, an uncanny pattern. It seems that those on the front lines for God experience angels more often. A few weeks ago, my aunt and uncle were here with us visiting. They are retired international missionaries, and they were here. They've uh, been in some pretty harrowing situations through their calling, and true to the pattern, they have angel stories to tell. Many missionaries do. What might that mean? Want angel stories? Be a missionary. And to be clear, you don't necessarily have to move to be a missionary. Guess who else seems to, uh, seem to experience angels more often than others? Muslims who become believers. Perhaps because they're so hard to reach. It would seem that God goes to extra lengths through visions and angelic encounters to bring those Muslims who are being saved into right standing with Him. Angels are ministering spirit, spirits sent out to those who will inherit salvation. What's the application? How does this matter? For us. Well, for starters, doesn't it just do something to your insides to think, what if I get help from an angel? Will I even know it? Will I think it was just coincidence? Will my spiritual eyes be open? Will I have the faith to see the unseen? What will I say? What will I do? How will I acknowledge what God has done in helping me through the ministry of an angel? Let's continue this line of thought a little bit further. Folks, the spiritual realm is not so much some other place as it is all around us, through, though invisible to our eyes. This realm will not always be invisible to us, but for now we walk by faith. The Bible says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. How do we do this? How do we fix our eyes on what is unseen? Could we ever have enough faith to realize that what we see with our eyes is less important than what we cannot see, yet is all around us? This is the kind of faith Hebrews 11 refers to as the assurance of things unseen. Our faith in God is assurance that the invisible spiritual realm is real. And as 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, our goal is to live by believing and not by seeing, to walk by faith, not by sight. It would seem that we really ought to engage ourselves and attempt to live in this way. Why should seeing be limited to the electrochemical processes that go on between our eyeballs and our brains? Are there not things to see which the physical eye cannot? As the song says, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you. Is it possible there's more to see than you have seen? I think so, but we have to be looking. Sometimes we see the unseen more clearly 
than other times, don't we? Like when someone dies. Or maybe when God does a miracle and someone we love. Yeah, sometimes our faith is strong and other times it's weak. When our faith is strong, we see. When it's weak, we're blinded. But when God stirs our hearts and opens our spiritual eyes, we are able to practice an awareness of the spiritual reality around us and that is when our lives begin to change. Think about how it affects your behavior when you realize that God is actually present. And fellow um, Baptist background type people, let me tell you that it is entirely biblical to work on honing your spiritual awareness. I shall not be, I shall not be moved. That's not a good theme song. <laughs> By the renewing of your mind, you are transformed, Romans 12:2. Part of the renewed mind is to maintain a constant comprehension that, that we're not alone. We're not alone. This, this ain't all, all there is. God is with us, and we should remember that part of how he is with us is through the very real and actual presence of his angels. That's what the Bible teaches. God's angels are here, watching over us, ministering to us, helping, and wanting the best for those who are being saved by faith in Christ. The story is told of an old pastor working into the night on a sermon for his tiny congregation. His unsympathetic wife chides him for spending so much time on a message that so few will appreciate. Thinking of the angels that will be present, the pastor replies, you forget, my dear, since the angels will be joining us, just how large my audience might be. Folks, this is an entirely biblical line of thought. We should not forget what is going on in the spiritual realm around us, particularly when we engage in worship and service to the Lord. What if angels are always nearby? What if angels are here today? The Bible actually indicates that we can take out the what if. Angels are here, ministering to us. Just think about that. Secondly, what if God's angels really are protecting us? Would that not be a comfort to you? Would that not help with your fear and anxiety? To know that angels are actually protecting you from chance harm or the evil intent of others? Do you understand that these beings are holy and powerful and majestic and caring and that they're completely obedient to God? They do exactly what God tells them to do. There's a large mythos that has developed around angels, which has no basis in fact, no basis in scripture. I want to warn you against that kind of mythology. Angel numbers, come on. Whatever else, all that stuff. If it's not in the Bible, people are guessing, making stuff up. However, some of the skeptical Christians here today might be surprised to know that the idea of guardian angels is no myth at all. I thought that was a Catholic thing. Nope. The idea that specific angels are actually tasked with watching over us as individual people is entirely biblical. The Bible says, Psalm 91, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Angels guarding us. And just in case you want to say that was only about Jesus, and it isn't a prophecy about Jesus, but I think it's more than just about Jesus. 
But even if you want to say that, here's another. Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. I think biblically it's really pretty clear that angels look out for us. We all know that God is with us and God watches over us, but how does he do it? According to these verses, at least some of the time, he uses angels. And in case someone still isn't convinced by these verses from the Psalms, look, back, look forward with me at Matthew 18.10. Speaking of children, Jesus himself said, Beware that you don't despise a single one of these little ones, children, for I tell you that in heaven their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. Their angels? Does this mean every single child has an angel? That really seems to be what Jesus indicated, doesn't it? Why have we ignored this? Maybe we shouldn't. And then once again, today's text also tells us of angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? God's angels are sent out to render service to us, to minister to us, to care for us. Is anybody else feeling a, uh, an infusion of confidence yet? As the psalmist said, whom shall I fear and what can mere man do to me? Now listen, I'm aware that angels don't always protect us from everything, okay? We're not promised a sheltered, pain-free life and we don't live forever in these bodies. Angels only act according to God's sovereign will. But isn't it still a great comfort to realize there are actual, real angels watching over you and caring for you and that whatever comes your way must first get through them? I do believe this that angels are watching over us, guarding us on behalf of God, and that is a comfort. Consider this, what if God's angels were not here? Because there's another side to the spiritual realm, isn't there? There's an evil side. There are evil angels who rebelled against God long ago and are now called demons, and there's Satan who's their leader. They're, the Bible says Satan hates the children of God and wishes to devour them like a roaring lion. What's stopping him? Seriously. Literally, what is stopping the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms from doing their worst upon those of us who are inheriting salvation through Christ? What if we did not have the protection of God's angels? I wonder how much goes on that we never see and how much evil intent is never experienced by God's children because of the mighty angels who encamp around us as we revere or fear God. How much do the angels protect us from? I wonder what my life would be like if God's angels had not been protecting me all along, if they were not protecting me right now. And why do they do it? Why do they do it? Did you know the Bible says angels rejoice in heaven when someone receives Jesus as Savior here on earth? Luke 15, 7 and 10. Isn't that beautiful? Think of the angels actually rejoicing when you came to Christ. Why? Why do they care? I don't know, but they do. And they're now tasked with protecting you on God's behalf. What if the ones who rejoiced over your salvation are the very ones who are guarding you? What if they were excited about their new job? You know? 
Take a moment and seriously think about what we're learning today. What if God's angels really are watching over you? What if they're protecting you? Again, I submit the Bible takes out the what if and makes the claim that these things are, in fact, reality. I believe angels are here right now. I believe angels are protecting us right now. And I'm talking about real spiritual angels, not just ordinary people who are being metaphorically uh, angelic. Folks, angels are real, and angels are ministering to us and protecting us as people who are inheriting salvation. Maybe somebody's wondering, what difference, what difference does it make since we can't see what they're doing? Well, if we were to walk around with an awareness of these things, indeed, if you were to have faith that these things are true, don't you think it might change the way you live? The way you see events and circumstances? Maybe even the way you feel. Does anybody ever have trouble with the way you feel? And don't raise your hand on this one, but is anybody in therapy uh, or maybe taking meds because of the way you feel? I'm just saying, last I checked, the way people feel matters. I think we're all fairly concerned with the way we feel. It matters to God. And he has given us his word, every sentence of it, for a reason. How does it make you feel to know that you have angels protecting you and ministering to you on behalf of God? Good to know. My friend, even Jesus didn't try to go through life alone. At his two weakest moments, the Bible says the angels attended to him. In the desert, after he withstood the temptation of Satan, in the Garden of Gethsemane, after he begged God for another way, yet ultimately submitting to his will, both times angels ministered to the needs of the Son of God. Angels. And see, God has promised the same to you. You get angels, fellow believer, just like Jesus. Never worship or try to get in touch with angels. Hopefully you understand that. Never put angels in the place of God. It's idolatry. I know, we probably all know somebody on the extreme, right? Somebody we don't want to be like. Somebody who's focused on angels and demons and the spiritual realm. And they just seem a little bit nuts. I don't know about you, but that's not my problem. I don't think about these things enough. I need reminders like this sermon because my tendency is to forget all about the supernatural realm, which is really, really dumb on my part. I should know better. You know, maybe some of those are always looking for demons behind every bush and angels everywhere and everything are a little nuts. But then again, maybe the rest of us are just a little too worldly. Regardless, I would say that few, if any, in this room have the problem of thinking too much about the unseen realm. What most of us need is to wake up to the spiritual We need to stop dwelling and stewing and worrying about the physical circumstances that, that we want God to change. As we read earlier, these are light and momentary struggles compared to eternity. We need to stop looking at whatever we think is so important in the current events and, and politics in our fallen world and stop saying, why doesn't God do something? Instead, we need to realize that God is doing something. He is doing more than we can even imagine. He's fighting battles for us in the spiritual realms. He's ministering to us when our need is deepest in ways we don't even understand. He's doing things that matter for eternity, and ultimately, he will win the war. In fact, the war is already won. 
It's kind of like, though, this whole angel thing. It's like when you take your pet into the vet, and the vet saves her life somehow. Your pet didn't know that you saw her pain or that you sought out a surgeon who could help her. She didn't know that the surgeon helped her on your behalf, your request, your cost. She didn't know how much you cared or that you actually prayed for her <laughs> or even that you knew what was wrong. All she knew was that she was in pain, and when you had to leave her in a place she didn't know so that she could recover, she might have even thought you had abandoned her, but you had not done so. I wonder if your pet ever made the connection. She knows that something on her insides was messed up, and now it's okay, that the pain is diminished or gone, but does she know why? Does she think feeling better is a coincidence? Does she know that the surgeon was acting for you like an angel on your behalf? According to Scripture, God's angels are here with us right now, ministering to our spirits, protecting us, defending us, rejoicing with us, helping us. The book of Hebrews has taught us that angels are ministering spirits sent by God to those who will inherit salvation. We may never know all that they've done for us, but regardless, I hope some of you have found encouragement in the truth about angels this morning. I want to close with one last and brief point. Surely you've noticed the qualifying statement about who it is that angels are sent to help. They minister to those who will inherit salvation. Is that you? Is that you? They will actually, that this will actually be our topic for next week, but even in this moment, I want to give you an opportunity. Have you received salvation from God? Salvation happens when you turn away, you repent of unbelief and self-reliance, and you put your trust in Jesus to save you from your sinfulness and to change you from the inside out. Salvation happens when you take a step of faith by trusting in what Christ did on the cross as you receive forgiveness and grace, the gift of God called salvation. Have you received the gift of salvation? Are you inheriting salvation? You never want to be one of those preachers who tries to bribe people, but I'm just telling you if, you, if you are, you get angels. I mean, come on. It's not health and wealth. I don't know, maybe they'll come up with a new, uh, new name for that one. But it's true, and you get a lot of things. <laughs> you get to become an heir with Christ. We talked about it last week. So maybe somebody's ready today. I just want to ask everybody to bow your heads with me. We're just going to pray, and it's not a magic prayer. I'm just going to try to guide someone today. If there's anyone here who, who, who just needs to know how, I'm ready. I want salvation. I want to receive Jesus as my Savior, but you just don't know exactly how. Then you can just tell him, and you can just respond to his spirit in your heart right now and just say yes. How about yes? Um, save me. Um, Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I turn away. I turn away from everything else and I just put it all on you. I, I, just, I just need you, God. I need Christ. I need Jesus to be my Savior today. I cry out to be saved. Oh, how hard it is to believe that's all he's asking for. Well, that's step one anyway. The rest follows as he changes you. But how hard it is. But Lord, it's because you already did the hard part. You've already died on the cross for our sins. You've already risen again to make a way for us to receive eternal life. 
All we are asked of, all that is asked of us is faith. I pray today someone would put their faith in Christ. As I did when I was six years old, and I still remember the peace that came over me. My, I guess angels were rejoicing in heaven, your word says. And my walk with you began. I pray today is the beginning for someone that they would actually be able to say after today, okay, I've put my faith in Jesus Christ, so I am now one who is inheriting salvation. God, thank you for how you work in our lives. Thank you for your angels. Thank you um, for the things they do, for, for ministering to us and protecting us. Please keep working in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.